0: As an African American born into slavery, nobody would have suspected this man would grow up to be one of the greatest public speakers of all time. In this episode, we discuss the life and achievements of an abolitionist, a politician, and most importantly, a free black man in 19th century America, as we ask, who is Frederick Douglass? Welcome to America, a history podcast. I'm Liam Heffernan, and every week we answer a different question to understand the people, the places, and the events that make the USA what it is today. Joining us from the faculty is Dr. Rebecca Fraser, a historian of 19th century America with a particular interest in the history of African Americans, especially relating to their resistance against slavery and the enslaved experience. Welcome back Rebecca.
1: Hello, hello, nice to be back.
0: Yep, great to have you on this, and uh, we're also joined by Tony Phillips, a former undergraduate in American Studies at UEA. He forged a career as a documentary maker at the BBC, later becoming a commissioning editor at BBC World Service and Radio 4. He was also vice president of content at WNYC Studios in New York, and he's currently the exec producer on Every Voice with Terence McKnight for WQXR. That's a lot of letters. Uh, Welcome, Tony. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's uh, it's really great to have you join us for this. Um, A pleasure. And, you know, Frederick Douglass is a name that comes up a lot amongst anyone that has discussed uh, or studied American studies. Um, So I think it's really important that, you know, earlier on in this podcast journey that we're taking our listeners on, that we really dive into who Frederick Douglass is and the impact that he's had. So let's start at the beginning. Let's talk about his life as a slave and and understand his backstory a bit more. So, uh, Rebecca, I wonder if you could shine a bit of light on that.
1: Yeah. So, um, so Douglas, where do we start? I mean, so um, so Frederick Douglass um, uh, was born into slavery, right? So he was born in around 1818. Um, but obviously, with enslaved peoples, there's no. Um, well, there's very little record um, unless enslavers um, develop an inventory um, of um, enslaved peoples born on, on their particular plantations, listing, you know, sort of their age, their value and, and such like. So it's, it's a bit hazy as to, you know, sort of exactly when he was born. Um, so but he was born into slavery and he was born um, to um, an enslaved woman, Harriet Bailey. And the rumour was that his father was a white man. Um, the rumour was that his father was his mother's master, right, enslaver. Harriet Bailey was sold very soon after Frederick's birth when he was just a toddler. So they were separated and this happened, you know, sort of constantly in the systems of slavery in terms of profit, in terms of enslavers and um, seeking increased profit from their enslaved chattel. So um, he only got to see his mother once um, every kind of um, few weeks, if that. He was raised by um, his his grandmother, and this is particularly um, usual in in these circumstances. I mean, uh, um, uh, Harriet Jacobs, another um, enslaved uh, uh, woman who was famed among the abolitionists, she was also raised by her grandmother after the death of her mother and uh, um, uh, and father, and uh, and so you know, sort of, it, it's very usual for these extended family networks to um, to raise uh, enslaved children when um, parents are sold away or they they're orphaned because of of death so, yeah, and his life as, as an enslaved um, uh, um, person was, um, was pretty typical, um, I think. He, he was sold to various enslavers uh, um, and hired out as well to various um, uh, um, uh, white peoples to, um, to work for them. And, um, and I think what really motivated the, the turning points to make him really determined to escape enslavement, I think are, are three particular moments his witnessing of aunt hester being uh, whipped uh, just brutally by her um enslaver um for daring to go and see her her lover and um, so a man that she was uh, so he was enslaved as well going and seeing her lover and uh, the enslaver was enraged by this and um and Frederick Douglass, the young Frederick Douglass, around seven years old, witnesses this. And Aunt Hester is um, stripped and whipped within, you know, sort of an inch uh, of her life. And he explains this as a kind of the bloodstained gate of slavery. I mean, this is just horrific for a seven year old to witness, to be, you know, sort of. a a voyeur, really, um, secretively watching. I mean, the enslaver doesn't know that um, he's watching. And then I think he's sold um, to uh, the Olds um, in Baltimore. And Sophia Old, his mistress, teaches him to read. She begins to teach him to read. And this changes Frederick Douglass's life. Her husband, his master, um, Colonel Old, um, instructs Sophia to stop knowledge is dangerous for enslaved peoples to acquire so she does stop teaching him to read but he learns um uh, by <laughs> bribing the local um white schoolboys uh, with bread uh, um so they he gives them bread um which is you know sort of available um from the cook's kitchen and they teach him to read they teach him his letters Doug uh, Frederick um, attributes his escape and his knowledge um, of, you know, sort of freedom to literacy, and it's a campaign that is lifelong in terms of bettering oneself through education. It's it's phenomenal, and then um, of course there's the fight with uh, with Covey, um, uh, um, which is just fundamental. So um, Covey was a um, what is known in um, the nineteenth century as a slave breaker. Um, so he's a poor white man. He hires um, Frederick at the age of about 16 and seeks to break Frederick in very, very brutal punishment. And he, uh, Frederick Douglass says in, in his narrative, um, uh, you now see a man become a brute, right? He is so worn down by this, you know, sort of breaking of uh, by Covey, that then he fights back the one time he sort of musters the kind of courage and the the strength to actually, you know, sort of fight back. And he he then says, you know, sort of, uh, um, you see a slave being made a man. Um, So masculinity is key to all of this. And that's a whole other discussion, right? And I think those were the three central kind of um, moments which cumulatively encouraged and turned Frederick's ire towards this isn't this isn't the way people should be treated let's let's uh, um try for an escape and um and then he um then he does successfully
0: mm. and um, in preparation for this podcast i've been rereading the first of several of douglas's autobiographies uh, the narrative of the life of frederick douglas an american slave i'll put it in the show notes for anyone who's interested one of the things that's in that that I found really interesting was was how much he was kind of wrestling with the burden of intellect, of understanding mm. the the position of slavery and and understanding why it's such a wrong. And so, Tony, I wonder if you could speak a bit on that on that fight for freedom and on the sort of that journey that, that Frederick went on to mm. to to get there.
2: Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I mean, I I, I came across Douglas primarily as a student as you said in your in your introduction but i i don't really recall it being a kind of deep immersion into douglas i remember kind of coming across him a little bit but it was really when i left and and went to the bbc and started to make documentaries that i really kind of felt oh i think i've missed something here that this this guy is so so significant and i and i therefore pitched an idea to 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 tell the story as much as I could of Douglas, and it was just interesting, you know. Even even that question that you raised at the very beginning about his origins, um, you know, in the in the first narrative, uh, he he starts by saying, "I was born," and I always felt I remember reading that, you know, this is in the early nineteen nineties. I remember reading that over and over again, thinking, that, that "This is just so painful because." Although he was born there, if you like, in body, I, I didn't feel that he was—he was both in America but not of America. He was—he was like millions of other people transported there, historically, you know, brought there. And and there's a connection between my own personal interest and my own personal experience. You know, we came effectively; our families took a very similar route from the west coast of Africa through to the Caribbean and then up to what is now the United States. So in in my documentary, I I started the story actually on the west coast of Africa in in Ghana, uh, what is now known as Ghana. And I had, I I kind of took license and rooted Douglas there uh, or his descendants there. And so I wanted to paint that journey that he wasn't really from Talbot County. He was, but he wasn't. And, uh, and the African-American experience for me as a student was always about, uh, always about looking a bit deeper beneath the surface that, you know, yes, he, he became an enslaved person, but he was fundamentally a person first and always was a person. And so I wanted to challenge that notion of, of him and millions of others, my own relatives in the Caribbean, challenge that notion of us being seen as, the, as white men and white women of the, of, in those times us. And so as, as, as Becky just pointed out, I mean, you've got this extraordinary individual who pulls on these resources to kind of trade bread for literacy and stand up to these violent slave breaker men. I mean, you've got an extraordinary character there and I, I was just intoxicated by him as a, as a sort of audio storyteller to try and map some of this stuff and to try and map some of those, some of the extraordinary journeys he went on. And it was the literacy bit that I focused quite heavily on. I think he was told, and I can't remember where, you'd probably remember better than I would, Becky, that where was it that he was told that literacy would make him unfit to be a slave? Was that was that the Baltimore Master?
1: Yeah, so that was uh, Colonel Old. Right. Um, uh, I think it was Colonel, um, uh, but it's um, certainly Master Old, um, and so he has the Master Old when he catches Sophia. Teaching Frederick to read, Master Old says teaching him will, you know, make him unfit to be a slave. Well, of course it would, yeah, right, because you know yeah. he'd know that slavery um, is is just wrong, yeah. right?
2: But yeah, and 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 so what I find what I found really mesmerizing as I was rereading as well over the last couple of days in preparation for today, I'd forgotten just how much it reads like. Um, Well, just like an amazing piece of journalism that it is, when he says in that first narrative, an American slave written by himself, he says he doesn't, I mean, he speaks a lot about literacy and and that journey that he he took to learn his ABCs and the rest of it. But what what I'd forgotten about was how much he kind of didn't tell. He didn't, it wasn't a tell-all about how he did it because he was fully aware that there were thousands of others around him that he knew. That he didn't, he didn't want to, sh- he didn't want to lift the lid on how he did it exactly. He wanted to keep some of that back, but he wanted to impress upon the reader, mm-hmm. "Listen, you've just got to believe me. I can't, I can't tell you everything because it will put their lives in jeopardy and their plans for for their own escape. It would, it would perhaps damage their attempts for their own escapes to freedom. But just go with me, please. Just, just trust me on this." And so I love the idea that. Mm-hmm. He didn't tell everything.
1: It's like that with so many narratives written by enslaved peoples in America, you know, sort of, I keep coming back to it, but, you know, Harriet Jacobs, she writes under a pseudonym, Um, so she's Linda Brent, Um, and, you know, sort of, and it wasn't until years later that the research was done that actually they could map the pseudonym she'd given everybody in her narrative onto the the realities and the historical uh, situations. And of course, she couldn't out certain people as well. Um, And, you know, it just, um, and again and again and again, we find this, so it's, you know, just trust me on this, as as Tony has said, but actually I can't reveal everything um, because um, if I do then those peoples who you know have helped me um maybe criminalize themselves or you know sort of punish themselves so this is a, a life actually that I don't think 21st century um uh, audiences um would would really really understand having to kind of live your life in two ways it just you know sort of so you know in mean, secret in a way so um so yeah it just and um, and I was I've read the narrative again over the past few days and i was just inspired again i just I, it's amazing i mean sort of so um so yeah
2: i spent time when i was making the documentary with a, a a a douglas biographer called william mcfeely and i can't remember the name of the biographer but william mcfeely wrote a fantastic biography and his 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 book and name is probably worth putting on your list as well but Bill McFeely, when I asked him if he would do this, he said, yeah, sure. I'm very happy to talk to you about Douglas. Where do you want to talk? I said, where do you want to meet? And I think he was based in Athens, Georgia. And he said, well, to be honest, there are so many places, but one of the most significant places is is to go to Nantucket. So I I went, I, I, I then did a bit more reading and Bill told me that Nantucket was the place that soon after escaping to the north. Douglas was, of course, taken up by various abolitionists and protected, and he got married quite quickly as well. But he, he then kind of hit the road with the abolitionists as a, as, a, as a public speaker. And where Bill took me was to this amazing church, which still stands, where Douglas spoke. And it was one of his first main sort of public events. And he was quite nervous. I remember Bill explaining that Douglas was nervous. Douglas was quite apprehensive. And I think he used the expression, um, allow me to speak plainly. He was very nervous and he was kind of quaking in his boots. But then he started to speak and he gained a little confidence as the audience was responding to him, explaining and describing his time as an enslaved person. And and therefore it kind of gave him the courage. He, He didn't stop telling his story for pretty much the rest of his life. But it was wonderful to be kind of taken there, almost walking in his footsteps up into the church and to the pew, perhaps where Douglas would have sat and you can see where he would have stood at the lectern. But it was, yeah, it's just that that journey of freedom, at least psychologically for him, through through speaking his story. And then, of course, I was gripped by Douglas coming to Britain, which is essentially where he legally, became free. That was something that I I hadn't really figured out. I kind of learned on the way, but there were two women in particular, two, I think they were sisters, Emma and Anna, I think, Richardson, I think they may have been from Newcastle. They they were abolitionists in Britain and they raised money, approximately 150 pounds, to be sent back to his owner, to his master, Thomas Old, uh, to buy his freedom. It caused some consternation because there were some abolitionists in Britain who were saying, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't take that money because that means you're playing along. You're, you're, you agree in some, in some way with, with the institution of slavery and you shouldn't do this, you should reject this. And Douglas had to explain, listen, when I go back to America, they can slap me in chains. They can send me back down South. They can, they can make me a slave again because legally I am still somebody else's property. So I need to do this. I hear what you're saying, but I need this. I need this legal bit of paper.
0: And you know, as we've touched on, you know that that abolitionist movement was was in full swing even at the time that that Frederick Douglass found his freedom. But Tony, how important do you think it is that former slaves like Frederick? are standing and speaking and telling their story, um, you know, through, you know, the written word in their autobiographies, but also, you know, standing up and speaking, you know, what what did that do for the movement?
2: I think it was essential. It was absolutely critical. And especially when you can get people as articulate as and, and as persuasive as Douglas, uh, I think it was central. But I think it's also really important to know that You know, Douglas was in a continuum. There were others who came before him, and there were many who came afterwards. And in fact, there's a whole literary tradition of African Americans who are just telling their story, speaking their truth, as it were. You know, from you know Ida B. Wells, and uh, there are so many. Douglas is in that tradition, and and I think he really needs to be seen in that light rather than the one and only, I mean, he was a, he was a singularly influential individual, and, uh, but, but he was in this continuum that we still see today, right through from, you know, Dr. King, James Baldwin, Maya Angelou, Tony Morrison, there are many, uh, Malcolm X, there are so many who are in that tradition of, of speaking, whether it's in, in literary form, in a, in a play, in song, or in speeches like Douglas and and Co would have been doing, it it's it in so many ways defines a kind of Afro African American literary and historical tradition.
1: I think as well. I love this idea of um, speaking um truth truth to power and. It's really important that Douglas was in Frederick Douglass was enslaved, right? So it's not just like he's a free black man and he's um, talking about sort of the injustice of slavery. He's lived it, right? And hundreds of other um, enslaved peoples who escape from the south. To, and also, you know, sort of slavery existed in the north, so we have uh, um, enslaved women and men. Um, I'm thinking about Susan A. Truth, who was enslaved in um, New York. They write their narratives too. But Douglas and uh, Frederick Douglass and others um, who were um, enslaved and escaped, they lived slavery. Their experiences were not just imagine what it's like. They they could tell what it was like, and they couldn't tell, as we said earlier, the whole truth. Because you're, you know, sort of you're um, you're pitching to an audience that is perhaps um, uh, um, uh, of a particular class, i.e., middle class, um, who who are offended by, you know, sort of the the kind of, you know, grotesque brutalities of, of slavery and and um, aspects of um, slavery such as rape, brutal whippings, etc. So there were limits to what they could say, but yet you know, Douglas Frederick Douglas um, stood on. The stages, the platforms of, of abolition, told his truth, but also just questioned what America was doing. Right, so this wasn't just you know sort of listen to my story. I'm so you know sort of pity me. He was absolutely furious with America. The, your history is a sham, right? So the Fourth of July, you know, sort of what does the yeah. uh, what does Fourth of July mean to, um, uh, to 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 the slave? I think most iconic speech of, of the 19th century made on the 5th of july rochester corinthian hall and he absolutely just lambasts america um, for this sham of of a, of a festival um w- where's the independence for um enslaved peoples right yeah. and so for th- this articulate wonderful um eloquent man black man to stand um, you know, on the platform of, of abolition. Um, and not only say, you know, sort of um, that, you know, sort of being enslaved is wrong um, in terms of the rights of humanity, in terms of social justice, but also America, but look at you, what kind of history is that? He calls them barbarians, he calls it barbaric. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, to stand up and say, and this is a man that claims um, and, and was, you know, so he claims an identity, as an American, he wasn't, I'm, you know, sort of my origins are African and I'm adamant that I'm going to go back to uh, Africa. And he was, he was very, very conscientious about all the time, you know, I'm African American, right? I, mean, I deserve the, 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 the rights of an American. Um, and so, and I think that's essential um, for the way in which we think about um, uh, Frederick Douglass, Uh, And we think about um, black abolitionists, because Tony's right, this wasn't just, you know, sort of Frederick Douglass on his own, you know, sort of leading the charge. There were so many more um, uh, um, black abolitionists of the kind of pre-Civil War era um, that, you know, sort of stood up on that stage and, you know, on the platform of uh, of abolition and, you know, sort of um, spoke their truths, um, spoke their truths to power as well um which is essential and it's a real kind of testimony to um to their activism um and intellect actually um that by 1861 the civil war had erupted and you know sort of and started sorry and slavery was eventually abolished after four years of cataclysmic conflict so um and that is due in most part to enslaved people's efforts Right. So, you know, sort of I think we, we really need to, to sort of stress that. I,
2: I was very lucky to have met around the time I was making this Douglas documentary, I met the widow of Malcolm X and Betty Shabazz was doing the rounds at that time as much of her later life. She, she used to go and talk to students a lot. And she used to, I think she told me one occasion she was at Harvard, and she said to, she read this quote, and she said something like, uh, well, for revolting barbarity and shameless hypocrisy, America reigns without rival. Who said that? And they'd all shout, Malcolm! And she'd say, no, Frederick Douglass. And so the links between you know how history kind of contracts and then stretches out again the links between malcolm x and frederick Douglass, or even james baldwin if you go online and watch james baldwin's speech in the cambridge union i think that was 1963. one of the things by the way that baldwin says is i picked the cotton i went to market i mean it's just like hold on a minute you of course it he's you know there's an identification there historically with the time of douglas and beyond so that link that connection between douglas and all the others of his time right through to today it's it's rock solid disturbingly rock solid because it appears that you know the united states is to, and other countries are still struggling to come to terms with concepts of diversity and equity and inclusion and you know, there's still a lot, there's still an awful lot we, we can learn from Douglas and from what he was saying, from what he from what he was articulating, as a need for America to kind of grow into the nation that it always wanted to be. So there's still a lot for us to learn from people like Douglas.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and I do think as well that Frederick Douglass and um, other black abolitionists of the um, pre-Civil War era, so sort of first half of the 19th century, they provide a model. They provide a model for other black um, activists, um, you know, sort of from sort of Ida B. Wells to um, uh, Marcus Garvey to um, uh, Martin Luther King to, you know, sort of Malcolm X. They're the model, right? Um so you know, sort of this is not just and so many um, of my students don't really know who Frederick Douglass is. And like, you know, so sort if of you want to know why Black Lives Matter is the, the biggest campaign um, in the twenty first century um, US, it's because of, of men like Frederick Douglass who provided that, you know, sort of model of how you become that social champion for for activism, for change, for for social justice, for racial equality, um, and it was needed then because of slavery, racial slavery. But it's also needed now um, for you know the, the uh, shooting of unarmed uh, black men and women um, at the hands of of the police and and racial abuse and and such like. So, but it's where the Doug, Frederick Douglass um, and you know other black abolitionists is where it began um, and uh, and the fact that Frederick Douglass was the most photographed man in 19th century America you know hundreds of pictures of take were taken of him and this is because Frederick Douglass realized the image mattered yeah it was important um, uh, to sort of show that African Americans could be dignified could be respectable um, uh, but it it wasn't just that they could you know they uh, could articulate well or you know sort of uh, um, because of their intellect it was because of the way they looked right so and Douglas um, no one can deny he he his pictures are absolutely a thing of beauty um, and he takes them all through his life um, from a young man to I think he died at a um, the age of um, 85 or something. So, mm. you know, sort of uh, all through his life. I mean, uh, Henry Louis Gates calls him, uh, if he was alive today, Douglas would be like a social media influencer, the the best social media influencer, because he knew. He knew what mattered, and it was, you know, sort of image. So, yeah. We're
2: talking vogue here. We're talking vogue, Liam. It's front cover. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, do you know what? Uh, I mean, you're you're spot on, and I think it helps that Frederick Douglass. He's a good-looking guy, oh, so yeah. like, not only can he like talk a good game, oh. but he's 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 pleasing to look at as well. Yes. Oh yeah. Nineteenth-century uh, equivalent of social media influencer for sure. So
1: you're and, veering you know, into objectification of black masculinity there. <laughs> um, Liam, so, That's another episode, you know. I think. But <laughs> You can't say
0: it. Yeah. By the way, but you know, I think um, we've. We've probably only really just started that conversation around Frederick Douglass and his life, and and we haven't even really explored that later career that he had in politics. We've sort of just touched on it, and I do think that's something we're going to have to revisit uh, and talk about uh, a lot more. That and 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 more detail about his enslaved experience, and also the the sort of the journey of escaping. And and that journey that slaves went on to get their freedom, as you say, was very vague in deliberately vague in Douglass's autobiography. But I think is something that that we probably need to explore on this podcast because I think it deserves time. And another thing that you that you mentioned, um, Tony, about you know exploring the history of Frederick Douglass is also exploring the roots of African American slaves. Because I do think too often when we look at African American history, we focus on the American part. We don't necessarily focus on the African part. Um, and I think that's a very interesting tidbit to, to leave people thinking about. But to sort of close off our very, very brief discussion, I'd really like to ask you, Tony, you know, what, what do you think that the sort of the, the enduring legacy of Frederick Douglass is? <laughs>
2: huh. There's so much and um I don't know. I mean it it's a it's it's a big question. I I I, I received um I don't know. I I think there's one quote that always seems to not just come back to me, but it it kind of resonates quite deeply within me that I think Douglas said this quite late in his life, that education means emancipation. And that, that that was critical for me as a youngster, as a young guy growing up in the north of England, as a student at UEA. And it continues to be the thing today that, you know, there's no substitute from just knowing stuff. It just means that you're gonna. There's a better chance you're going to be able to figure your way through something, or figure way, figure yourself away from something. I don't. He's not. A, he's not a figure I, I would. I, I feel comfortable trying to reduce to one thing, but I think that 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 notion, that concept of emancipate of of education, meaning emancipation just just holds so much and just on on that note only a year or so ago i came across the work of a of a young researcher in britain uh, called hannah rose murray who's done this amazing map charting frederick douglas's time in in britain but she's also expanded to to, to pinpoint and Uh, map the journeys of other abolitionist orators and speakers and activists. So, I mean, her work, her work is really important, I think, because it's, you know, you'll be looking at a map of England and Ireland and Scotland and Wales, and there'll be hundreds of little pins on there. And you can just drop, you know, click on those and it will tell you who was speaking when. It's a map that is just going to get fuller and fuller and more populated as more information comes forward. But again, it's still in that realm of education means emancipation.
0: This episode of America, a history podcast, was produced, edited and hosted by me, Liam Heffernan. A special thanks to our guests this week, Dr. Rebecca Fraser and, of course, Tony Phillips, And if you enjoyed this episode, do check out some of the extra resources that we've put in the show notes. And as always, a lot of work goes into this podcast. So if you can leave us a rating and review wherever you're listening, that would be amazing. Next time, we take a closer look at Black Lives Matter. What it is? and why it became so problematic in America.